Welcome to the State of the Outdoors, where we tell you straight what's going on at the local, state, and federal levels that impacts our outdoor heritage. Our intent is to inform and empower sportsmen and women to get involved. We'll try not to editorialize or sensationalize the issues of the day, and my partner in this venture is none other than our 4th District Director, Kentucky Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, Ben Bishop. Uh, we are broadcasting tonight from Mordecai's in Springfield, Kentucky. Ben, what you been up to, buddy? I've had a fairly busy month. Uh, with uh, Got back from an elk hunt at the beginning of January, which left a lot to be desired. We'll go into that a little later, I believe. I've uh, uh, been doing a lot of waterfowl hunting, but still another slow year, just like it was last year. A lot of, a lot of water. Lot it's really wet and just not ideal conditions. I know you've had you've had a little bit better luck. If you want to go into that <laughs> on the waterfowl side of things, yeah, that's that's about that's about all I've been up to is the elk and the waterfowl. Yeah, I, I'm blessed to have um, friends I've made over probably the last 20 years who are diehard waterfowlers and squirrel hunters, mm -hmm. and they. You know, they want to hunt every single day this time of year, and uh, I've got a lot of invites. And um, so we've done, we've, you know, it was very sporadic, the waterfowl success. Yeah. We'd have a day where we'd knock down three, four geese, two, three ducks, uh, and then days just nothing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm a new waterfowler, but what everybody tells me is if it's warm north of us, and it doesn't freeze up the water north of us, and it doesn't snow north of us. Yep. It doesn't push the birds down. Yeah, so. you're hunting strictly local birds, which seem to be smarter. They eat just the same. Yeah. Well, they. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've discovered I've discovered that I absolutely love eating duck. Yeah. Um, oh, man, it's so good. My wife has uh, decided on her own. She's a fabulous cook, but she's decided that she would medallion the duck breasts mm -hmm. and then um, kind of flash fry them in a stir fry yeah oh man i'm wearing that out <laughs> <laughs> if a goose comes in i'm really happy because mm -hmm. you know it's about two pounds of meat per bird yeah and uh the the older gentleman i'm waterfowl hunting with they um they have a pretty long-standing like uh, summer sausage recipe so they're trying mm -hmm. to get a certain amount of but duck comes in i'm like oh i'm gonna eat that sucker <laughs> <laughs> that going that joker's dinner it's it's by far one of my favorite pieces of game meat there I, it is i don't even know how to explain to anybody why i didn't discover this after <laughs> you know i'm almost 50 i've been hunting since i was like you know 11 i think mm -hmm. and, you know so anyway yeah waterfowl hunting's been great um i've had blessing to be uh you know taught how to properly squirrel hunt behind a dog which is it's not rocket science, but you yeah. know it's not the same as just sitting out in the woods and whacking squirrels. So, mm -hmm. so we've had some some pretty decent uh, some pretty decent late winter um, forays into the into the wilds, and uh, I'm becoming a bit of a generalist where I was a big game hunter. So. Yeah, so that's pretty good. Um, well, we're to that portion of the show, man, where you're going to cover the national issues. You ready? Yeah, uh, we'll start off uh, first out of about three or four things I got here. With uh, what's going on over the next month in North Carolina with with their blue laws, 
And uh, North Carolina is one of about 11 states, and they're all in the Northeast, that have some sort of restriction on hunting on Sundays, whether that be, you know. Which is a blue law. Uh, the blue law, yeah. I mean, it could be anything from big game hunting only on Sundays, no small game, or small game only, no big game hunting. Or you have, like, one of the four states of Delaware, Maine, uh, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, where all hunting is prohibited absolutely no hunting whatsoever uh, over the next month there's going to be i think five meetings where they're going to get public opinion on it and hopefully get this overturned i think it's completely unfair that it's even a thing to begin with i see why it became it was back in the 1860s when all this came about but i think if this overturns I have this to talk about because I think if this overturns, then you may see some of the other states follow suit. So hopefully North Carolina is just a stepping stone in the process of getting these, you know, which overturned. It, which may help us get some hunters back because right, yeah. if if you got four Saturdays a month and that's all you got because you're a working man or a working woman, yep. that's just terrible. Yeah, I mean... People working six days a week, that may be their only day off. You may have people that don't buy license, period, just because their only day is Sunday. So That's a great point. Yeah. So North Carolina is, you know, you can't hunt public ground on Sunday. So somebody that works six days a week, doesn't have a lease, doesn't have, you know, private land, that opportunity, they've got to go to public. You know, that's it's shut down for them. They have They have no access to it. So that's something to keep an eye on over the next month. I don't have the dates or anything, so I don't I don't know how many people on here are listening from North Carolina that would attend those meetings, but you never know. Uh, next up, we'll go with uh, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness up in Minnesota. Uh, basically, there's a potential lease for a copper nickel mine, and uh, the Boundary Waters is they're trying to set aside 234,000 acres to save from the copper nickel mine lease. That provides a lot of opportunities for hunters, for anglers everywhere up there. And I'm not for sure if there's been a mine in history that hasn't leached at some point. Yeah, I think that it's, was... It's almost inevitable that yeah. it will happen. I think they're 100% on leaching yeah. their byproduct yeah, and into so, the groundwater. Yeah, so that would that's <clears throat> not a good thing going on up in Minnesota, so... And, you know, the Boundary Waters is part of that system that provides a lot of fresh drinking water to a lot of citizens up there. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Know, um, today, by the way, Lan Tawney, president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, is on Capitol Hill to testify. Oh, yeah. Yep. I read that. Did you read that? Yep. On behalf of keeping that mine out of, out of uh, the Boundary Waters. Yep. Yep. So uh, we'll, we'll be watching that for sure. Uh, the third thing I want to go over is uh, the Public Land Renewable Energy Development Act, or PLORETA, I guess is how you'd say the acronym for it. Uh, House Bill 3794, Senate Bill 2666. It is brought forth by Representatives Paul Gosser of Arizona and Michael Levin of California, and then Senators Martha McNally of Arizona and Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, which I feel like Every conservation piece of conservation legislation that comes up, Martin Heinrich has something to do with it. <laughs> I feel like I feel like you're probably <laughs> yeah. right. So he's uh, he's fighting on behalf of sportsmen. That's for sure. 
But basically, it goes and it's identifying areas for wind, solar, geothermal development. Basically, basically that has zero to little or little to zero impact on wildlife and habitat, which is, I mean, I think everybody could get on board with that. I mean, and then on top of that, 25% of the revenue goes back to conservation. Wow, that's a great bill. Yeah. I don't know why anybody at all would be opposed to that. So it's a bipartisan effort. I would think it would fly right through the the House and Senate. So, and uh, lastly, we'll go to the appointment of William Perry Penley. That happened last year to a leadership position in the Bureau of Land Management. And this guy, he's written numerous articles, books, and advocated for the sale of all public lands in the West. I don't know about the East. I just know they've talked about it for the West. And I don't know how anybody who considers themselves a conservationist or a sportsman could be okay with this. And I know you have some thoughts on it if you <laughs> want to jump in here. Well, William Perry Penley um, is the acting director of BLM or, or he's the chief of policy executing the authority of the director BLM. And the reason, in my mind, that this administration will not just appoint him is because um, the head executive at Bureau of Land Management has to stand Senate confirmation. Yeah. And the Senate knows that Mr. Penley is a darling of the oil and gas industry and wants nothing better than a divestiture of all of our public lands. Mm-hmm. And he's written extensively, as you said, on it. Yeah. So there's no way Penley would make it through Senate confirmation. So it's the oldest, one of the oldest tricks in the political playbook is nominate somebody that will never get confirmed to the second position. Mm-hmm. Don't fill the top position. And then let the person in the second position execute the duties of the top position. Yep. And by default, they're in charge. Yeah. And uh, there, there's... The administration is circumventing Senate confirmation, and that's pretty underhanded. Yeah, absolutely. But that that wraps up what I got on the national side of things. You want to jump in and tell us what we got going on here in the state of Kentucky? Yeah. Thanks, brother. Um, last podcast, we discussed our new governor and his role and the new secretary of tourism and his role. Um, while we have yet to hear from the governor of sportsmen and women, I'm happy to report that uh, Secretary of Tourism Mike Berry attended the recent Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting this past Friday. Uh, I can report to everybody that he was gracious and attentive, and he seems to want to learn uh, what our issues are. And so right now, um, as far as our governor's administration and our new Secretary of Tourism, uh, I have nothing good, or excuse me, I have nothing but good news to report on that front. Good. Um, in our last podcast, I also covered all the pre-filed legislation, um, that was pertinent to sportsmen and women. Uh, and for everybody to remember, pre-filed legislation is something that our legislators do before the session starts. So the session has started since our last podcast Mm -hmm. and those pre-filed bills became actual bills. So in our last podcast, we talked about bill request 187. That's actually become House Bill 31, and it would repeal the 2019 Senate Bill 150 
that made carry concealed a right in Kentucky. So the new house bill 31 um, would take us back to the old method of carry concealed deadly weapons permitting. Yeah. Uh, right now it's not required anymore that you take the class mm -hmm. and have the actual license. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll have to go back to taking we'll taking the classes right. and all that. Stuff. And, and, you know, the only reason that you take that class is if you're going to carry concealed outside the state of Kentucky because we yes. have reciprocal yeah. agreements with other states. Yep. But inside the state, there's a very valid reason for that. And, and a little money. And a little money. But there's a very valid reason um, to not do the carry concealed deadly weapon. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of rural counties in Kentucky where police response time is 30 to 45 minutes. and. Yep. You know, you're really your only defense is, you know, to have a firearm handy. So, yep. um, bill request 33, excuse me, 354, we talked about last podcast, became House Bill 192. And it would establish new definitions for assault weapons uh, that would include most of our semi-automatic sporting arms. So, for me and you, as waterfowlers, you know, a, a, a semi-automatic shotgun with our plug-in, that three shots is pretty dang important. Yeah. It would actually define those firearms as assault weapons. It would require us to register them. It would establish a buyback program. Um, I use AF-70, so I'm good. Bill <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> Bill Request 354 has become Bill 192 or House Bill 192, and it is some of the most restrictive uh, gun anti-gun legislation I've seen in a long, long yeah. time. Um, bill request 342 um, became House Bill 45, and it is similar to the bill I just described. And it also would define assault weapons. It would make uh, registration for both assault weapons and semi-automatic pistols. Uh, it would not allow private institutions, educational institutions, to decide whether or not they were going to have firearms on campus, which could potentially end your college um you know, trap and skeet teams and yeah. rifle teams. I mean, these inner city politicians who've forwarded these bills really honestly are thinking myopically only mm -hmm. about their district. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Bill Request 282 uh, became Senate Bill 32, um, which now defines legal storage of firearm. And if you don't def if you don't store your firearm in accordance with that. It makes it a, a crime. So if you're not storing your firearm correctly, it makes it a crime. Yeah. And it, it's it's really really hard to imagine where the folks are going with this. Um, yeah. One of the bills that everybody or bill requests everybody was worried about was Bill Request 492, um, which was going to ban spring-loaded traps for fur bearers. Um, that did not become a bill. I say again, it did not. So sometimes yeah. bill requests don't actually become a bill. Yeah. Um, and so, like I said a minute ago, all of the gun control bills um, that we see um, in our legis in our Kentucky legislature this year are all sponsored or co-sponsored by Jefferson or Fayette County mm -hmm. um, inner city legislature and in inter city legislators uh, mm -hmm. from Louisville or Lexington. And you know, these folks enjoy the the protection of both a robust sheriff's department and a robust city police department. So either yep. Lexington City and Fayette county sheriff mm -hmm. or louisville metro pd and jefferson county sheriffs yeah um you know they've completely ignored the fact that rural kentuckians don't have any local law enforcement right. it's either the county sheriff or it's the ksp and response times when you call nine one one, 
You know, there was a very popular article in the L.A. Times last year where Martin County Sheriff here in Kentucky, the Kentucky Martin County Sheriff, got an article written about him in the Los Angeles Times because he sent out a Facebook message to all the residents in Martin County and said, buy a gun, buy a biting dog. Oh, yeah. And lock your door. Yeah, I remember that. Because there's only me and one other sheriff to patrol the entire county. Yeah. And so these inner city legislators look at their district they're you know they're and honestly because their district's really small in the inner city some of our rural um legislators have a three county district these these people have a very small slice of fayette county or jefferson county Mm -hmm. and um and they want more gun control and a lot of it and so uh, that's something that our listeners need to be paying attention to and uh, we'll tell you how to get involved with that here in a minute but i do want to give you at least one good bill because there is one. Um, bill Request 258, we talked about last time, became House Bill 52, and it requires the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources to promulgate, or in normal terms, make rules to hunt coyotes at night. Uh, the backstory on why we have a House bill um, that's going to potentially become law to force the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife to make rules to allow coyote hunting at night is the fish and wildlife commission already tried to do this on their own mm-hmm. and um, ignorant legislators uh, downtown who the fish and wildlife commission's admin regulations went before said, no, we don't want anybody out there hunting at night. It's unsafe. Even though we've told them that every surrounding state has coyote hunting at night yeah. and it'll be just fine. And even though we've been doing it with shotguns at night mm-hmm. for years Basically, this bill would, would allow more liberal use of centerfire rifles and more liberal use of light to mm-hmm. identify your target at night. And it would never allow um, coyote hunting with a centerfire rifle on public land. It would have to be on private. Yeah. It's a good bill. It's a yeah, really good absolutely. bill. And our coyote our population is just exploding. So yeah. um, thanks to uh, the sponsor of that bill, uh, Derek Lewis. Um doing it and that's house bill 52 it's something we can get behind um so that's it for legislation um but since we're done talking about legislation i want to encourage our listeners who want to get involved in you know and uh, get a little bit more educated and you know read up on it and figure out what their position actually is before they call or write their legislator i want to encourage you to go to um the Kentuckiana Safari Club's Legislative Affairs website, and that's www.kysci-lac.com. I say again, www.kysci-lac.com. Our local Kentuckiana Safari Club chapter has picked up um, picked up the ball for the League of Kentucky Sportsmen and started a Really, really good uh, legislative affairs webpage dedicated to keeping the sportsmen and women informed. And they have a position statement on every bill. And then they have links on those position statements where you can read the actual language of the bill and where you can contact the sponsor of the bill and all the co-sponsors and really get involved. Um, so now let's pivot. A hard pivot. <laughs> <laughs> An ugly hard pivot. Let's talk about elk um, in Kentucky. Um, there were some interesting updates from the Fish and Wildlife Commission this past Friday in the meeting I attended. 
Um, but for our listeners, let's let's cover real quick the Kentucky Elk season this season. Mm-hmm. Um, this season in Kentucky, uh, we harvested the fewest elk we've harvested in the better part of a decade. Um, we harvested only 248 elk. Um, and it's hard to believe that uh, with that low harvest number that the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife says that the herd is still growing. And meanwhile, they say the herd's growing, harvest numbers are going down, uh, hunters are telling us they're not seeing the elk anymore. Yep. And I attended a uh, recent meeting with the Kentucky Elk Guides Association, and at that uh, meeting, it's readily apparent, and those those um, guides that are trying to become more professional and have a professional association that governs their, li- their livelihood and their businesses, mm-hmm. um, they're talking to department in very formal terms now they don't believe we have near the number of elk that's in our elk report yeah um so 248 is the lowest uh, we've harvested in a long time and the elk guides association uh background hunters anglers and kentucky and safari club all believe we ought to end all the late cow seasons because of that we're basically killing bred cows mm-hmm. um in a herd that's we believe is going down and um you know, the department has just started a brand new um, population survey in conjunction with uh, the University of Kentucky. It's going to be a three-year survey, and as of last week, they had uh, collared 78 elk and put a vaginal transmitter in every one of the females. So every time those females calve, mm-hmm. that transmitter will come out with the calf, and the department will be able to do a little bit better monitoring of calf recruitment. Mm-hmm. or how many calves actually live to the ratio of calves born. Gotcha. But uh, let's revisit the total elk harvest this year, 248 animals. And then let's also go back to our podcast of last month and talk about Mr. David Ledford and the Appalachian Wildlife Center. Yep. Mr. David Ledford, the CEO and president of the Appalachian Wildlife Center, gave a presentation at the Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting in uh, December. And one of the questions he was asked was when are you going to be prepared to give elk back to the Department of Fish and Wildlife? Because that was in the contract. Yeah. And he didn't know. He said, you know, it, there's really not a a measurable number of elk I'm going to have on my property. There's not something we can say is exactly this is when it's going to happen. And that gave sportsmen some real, cons- you know, some real need to know. And, yeah. and it caused us some concerns. And here's the reason. We gave the Appalachian, we, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, Mm. gave the Appalachian Wildlife Center 241 elk of the sportsmen and women's elk. They don't belong to the Department of Fish and Wildlife. They hold them in trust for the people in the state. And so now they have 241 elk um, in and around their wildlife center. It's not high fenced, so Lord knows how many are still there. Mm -hmm. But we only harvested 248 this year. So... All hunters, people have been dreamt for years to draw this tag and are striking out like you can't believe this year. Horror stories you heard this yeah. year about how bad the elk hunting was in Kentucky. And we gave a elk viewing ecotourism outfit, 241 elk, and then all hunting operations in the state harvested 248. There's something to be concerned there. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, and... The contract for the Department of Fish and Wildlife with Appalachian Wildlife Center says the Appalachian Wildlife Center will give elk back. 
And the argument of the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources was, well, we stock elk on other properties. Well, here's where that breaks from logic. You'll never be able to hunt the elk on the Appalachian Wildlife Center. They're for ecotourism and elk viewing only. Every other place the department has stocked elk, they were for hunting opportunity. Yeah. So our elk went to some place that we're never going to be able to hunt, and here's the real kick in the pants. When the Appalachian Wildlife Center opens, the elk that sportsmen and women help pay for with, with conservation organizations like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, et cetera, but the sportsmen mm-hmm. and women in the state certainly helped to pay for those elk. Yeah. We're going to have, if we decide to go view those elk, which really are our elk, mm-hmm. we're going to have to pay David Lever and the Appalachian Wildlife Center to do it. So we gave him those elk. Now we got to go pay to see them. Yeah. It's so, quote unquote nonprofit organization. Yeah, and a quote unquote nonprofit organization. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, we all want any economic development in Bell County or Appalachia to succeed. We really all want that. Um, we just have some sincere concerns um, with the amount of elk given and the number of elk that we're actually harvesting with every hunter and every outfitter in the state. Yeah. And um, we could talk about this elk situation for a long time, but I'd actually like to circle back um, to your elk hunt and kind of get a report from you with what happened with your elk hunt. Yeah, uh, one of my buddies got drawn for the late-season cow tag. We went down to Hazard in Perry County and, uh, of course, got a hotel room and stuff down there. Uh, met a lot of other guys down there that were, you know, doing the same thing we were doing, late-season cow tags. And we hunted public for one day and absolutely nothing. No tracks, no sign, nothing. All we saw was a couple guys on side-by-sides going by and some rabbit hunters. Uh, we uh, ended up getting access on some private ground that uh, the landowner, he hadn't seen elk on there since since rifle season. So a couple months. But a lot of fresh sign in the area. There's, you know, uh, an old strip job side of a mountain. And there's a lot of tracks, a lot of sign. You know, it rained the next day. Basically all that was gone. And... That was it. We The only elk we saw was as the crow flies about a mile away on the side of the road that had been hit by a car. That was it. There was no elk anywhere. I think we from talking to other people there at the hotel, the other guys hunting, I think only uh, one other group of guys got uh, filled their tag. And I w- the first morning we ate breakfast there at the Continental Breakfast, there, I, would, I would say there was probably at least – 10 different groups of guys that came through that were getting ready to leave and go elk hunting. And from talking to everybody and what I heard, only one of those guys actually filled their tags. But it was, it left a lot to be desired. I was at least hoping to see some on hoof, not on their side, on the side of the road. But it, uh, the landowner, he told me, he said, man, he said, you know, five, six, seven years ago, he said, I could have took you up here on my side by side. And he said, I could have, I could have let you take your pick, which one you wanted, at basically any time of the day. And he said, they're just not here. He's like, you know, I haven't seen them in over a month. And I I don't know what to make of it all, but it was uh, it was fun to get out there, but also a little disheartening at the same time, knowing that they're in the state that they're in. But Well, it doesn't get any better than that than firsthand reporting. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it for your misery, but I love it that we give a first-hand report to yeah. our listeners. So, um, 
There's going to be more done here in the future with this three-year elk study between the Department of Fish and Wildlife and the University of Kentucky. I know that our nine appointed commissioners are, are very concerned and they're working very hard to try to figure out a way to fix this. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an issue of concern and um, it's something we should all be following very, very closely. Um, let's pivot to the, um, the Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting uh, that we had this past Friday. Um, I will tell you that your commission is looking at restructuring um, all of their meetings. And uh, in that restructure, they're going to eliminate their four standing committees. Uh, administration, public relations, wildlife, and fisheries committees will be eliminated over time. Um, there's some genuine concern among sportsmen's groups uh, like the League of Kentucky Sportsmen and Kentucky and Safari Club that uh, this new system could potentially lead to less transparency, not more transparency. And that's because in place of the standing committees, the Fish and Wildlife Commission would institute working groups. Um, and those working groups would be organized around specific topics instead of just public relations, administration, wildlife, and fisheries, like we now have in the four committees. And, and I believe their concerns are well-founded because if you look at Kentucky Revised Statute, which is law, uh, and you look at uh, Kentucky Revised Statute 150.023, it states specifically that committees must provide public notice of each meeting, including the date, time, and location information. So once again, the law states that those four standing committees that we currently have that are going to be eliminated um, must provide public notice of each meeting, including date, time, and location information. And there's nothing in that law about working groups. Mm -hmm. So while it would seem that working groups would be more efficient, there's nothing that requires them to be open to the public. So people are concerned that the working groups would be exclusive and that people would be shut out. At that meeting um, and at the third district meeting, um, I asked um, if any sportsman wanted to participate in a working group, would they be excluded? And I was told no. So at the third district meeting, and then following the third district meeting on Thursday night, I went to the full commission meeting on Friday morning and stood up and, you know, and of course it's recorded so that their answer is also recorded. And I mm -hmm. asked, uh, I said, if, you know, obviously for a working group, you're going to have to have experts on there. Yeah. You're going to have to have stakeholders on there because to get anything done, those are the people you have to have. But what if a sportsman just wants to attend? Can they contact the chairman of that working group and attend? And I was assured, absolutely, they will be open to the public. Um, so that's where we're at. We're going to have um, not eight meetings a year. We're just going to have four quarterly meetings a year. And in between those quarterly meetings, there'll be working groups working on specific issues. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the way that those four quarterly meetings will work is that what is briefed, for instance, in the March meeting, um, or what is brought for vote in the morning of the March meeting would be voted on and passed or not. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the afternoon of the March meeting, everything that would be worked on in the afternoon of the March meeting would be developmental for the June meeting. Gotcha. Yeah. So... When a sportsman or woman looked at the agenda, they would see what we're going to vote on in the morning for the March meeting. They would see what we're going to work on 
and develop. And I say we because it's my department and my commission, but I'm not on it. (laughs) 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 They would see what the department and the commissioners are going to vote on in the morning and what the department and the commissioners are going to discuss that's ready to discuss. Mm -hmm. And then they'll, they'll actually vote the afternoon of the March meeting to pass on issues in the afternoon to the voting session in the morning of the June meeting. Gotcha. And then the afternoon of the June meeting, they'll continue to work on things that are not yet ready or ready to mm-hmm. vote. And um, if they are ready coming out of the afternoon of the June, then they'll be passed on to the September meeting for a vote. So the way it works is, is you know, we, w- we would know a sportsman in the afternoon comes to a close in the March meeting, mm-hmm. what will be passed on to the June morning meeting for a vote. So we would have 90 days to take it back to our clubs and our, our rod and gun clubs, our Elk Foundation chapter meetings, our back on China Anglers chapter meetings. Mm-hmm. And then we would work on that yep. from there. So that's how the new quarterly meeting system works. Um, if that actually works um, to the to its highest level, um to, to its full potential, I should say. If that works to its full potential, I really got to give Dr. Carl Kleiner, the chairman of the commission, credit. And uh, um, I'm going to have to, you know, kind of wait and see. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what that happens. Um, after all those meetings were discussed, we then um, sat and watched the, the commissioners do their business. Um, there were a number of interesting motions made. Uh, Dr. Carlos, out of the first district, um, wanted to update the admin regulation that they voted on in December that would require double fencing on captive deer and elk farms um, and uh, require double fencing specifically on any new deer or elk farms or expansions to existing deer or elk farms. And we talked about this mm-hmm. in last month's podcast. Yeah. But the part I wasn't expecting is that um, he uh, offered a motion that would add to that and it would put a double electric wire to existing farms. So not okay. only would not only would new deer and elk farms or expansions to existing have to double fence, all existing would have to put two wires of electric around their existing fence. Okay. Um, and for people that don't know or aren't following, um, you know, chronic wasting disease is a serious issue. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways to prevent Transmission of chronic wasting disease is to prevent captive deer and elk herds, which are on deer and elk farms, from getting into contact with our wild elk and our wild deer. Yeah. So we still have not had a reported case in Kentucky, which makes our deer herd even more valuable. Um, and um, it, it can be a real tragedy. Uh, you know, just this morning uh, in Missoula, Montana, the Missoulin. Uh, their newspaper out there reported that a captive elk facility um, had a case of CWD. And um, in in a case of CWD in Montana, the law states that every animal on that elk farm must be slaughtered and tested. So that captive facility had one bull test positive for chronic wasting disease, and now every animal on that entire captive elk farm has to be slaughtered and tested. So, you know, there, there's a lot to think about, and I don't want to turn this podcast.
podcast into a CWD podcast any more than I want to turn it into an elk podcast. Yeah. But um, that was a really good motion made by Dr. Carlos. Um, there was also a motion to end uh, late season elk hunts in regard to um, any specific elk that was reported to be causing damage after hunting season closed. Previously, if there was elk damage and they could verify there was elk damage, um, they would uh, do a very localized quota hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a motion to end that process, and that also passed unanimously. And then the final motion um, was a request of um, one of the commissioners that the Department of Fish and Wildlife do some research and make a proposal for how to separate baiting for deer in the elk zone, which is legal, mm-hmm. from baiting for elk, which is illegal. And that also passed uh, unanimously. Um, there was a bunch of discussion and updates on other issues, um, but that's about all we really need to report to our listeners uh, about the commission meeting, other than some really good news, which I would like to tell everybody. Um Our law enforcement division chief, uh, Colonel Eric Gibson, has been on the job for less than two years. But uh, he is making great progress um, on all fronts. But uh, last Friday at the uh, commission meeting, he reported something that I think almost every sportsman and woman would want to hear. He has two back-to-back successful recruiting and training classes. so we should all see a significant number of new conservation officers on the job by turkey season. Awesome. Yeah, I know. I'm so, awesome, yeah. I'm so proud of him, man. He's a good man. Uh, he's a career law enforcement officer. Came over from Kentucky State Police and he has a very varied background. He's a great leader. And uh, it's not just because he's a colonel and I'm a colonel. We get along. I mean, you know, he, he really does have his, you know, SHIT together. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm proud of what he's doing. Good. But um, we're we're going to be danger close to having danger close to having a conservation officer in every county by turkey wow. season. Yeah, so wow. that's really really good news. That's all I have to report on the local uh, and state front. Although it always seems to be more, I guess, because I get to go to these meetings and sit all day and take notes. But, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts or wrap up issues or things you wanted to say? Uh, I don't think so. It all seems pretty cut and dry for the moment. I'll have to wait and see. Uh, wait and see what the next one holds. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> the interesting thing about this podcast is our format. We decided <laughs> <laughs> we decided that we would not editorialize or sensationalize. So yeah. we're, we're not. We're purposefully not giving our opinions. Um, <laughs> it might on, slip through the cracks every now and then. Yeah, on issues. So. I hope everybody hears us just reporting to you what we think is important since we're willing to do the research and go to the meetings. And then you can, you don't have to necessarily do all the reading uh, to get started. You can listen to this podcast, The State of the Outdoors here in Kentucky, and, and kind of get up to speed. Um, but I'd like to remind everybody that our commissioners and our politicians work for us, mm-hmm. not the other way around, and that your voice matters. And it's your civic duty to let our elected and appointed leaders know where you stand. State legislators have told me on multiple occasions that 30 emails or phone calls. I say again, state legislators have told me on multiple occasions 
that 30 emails or phone calls is the threshold will will, where they will take action and start listening. Our Fish and Wildlife Commissioners say it's only 10 emails or phone calls on any single issue that causes them to sit up and listen and take action. So think about that. Statewide, there's probably 500,000 people who buy hunting and fishing licenses, and we call them sportsmen and sportswomen. And, you know, it's a very, very low bar to get elected and and appointed officials to pay attention. And uh, I'm going to tell you how you can get involved now, same as we told you last month on the podcast, on national issues. The very, very best way to get involved is check out Backcountry Hunters and Anglers website. You can just Google Backcountry, all one word, hunters and anglers. Or you can go straight to their website at www.backcountryhunters, all one word, .org. I say again, www.backcountryhunters.org. And and, uh, you're going to want to click the Take Action tab or the Action button. Um and peruse that website but they make it too easy for you to get yeah. involved and um, let your opinion be known uh, to your legislators at the national level and then locally it's the kentucky anna safari club and their legislative affairs website and that's www.kysci-lac.com k-y-s-c-i-lac.com and you can go there, do your own research, and uh, the links that they put in their position statements uh, make it too easy for you um, to let your opinion be known. You don't have to agree with them. That's fine. But do your own research because please, people, the more people that get involved and the more of us that talk to our legislators and our appointed district commissioners, the more sportsmen's voices matter and the less bureaucrats matter. Um so those two websites make it so easy to become informed. Uh, make a couple clicks, click a couple buttons, and tell them what you think. Um, we would also like to thank our first sponsor. Yeah. Yeah, Walter <laughs> at Louisville Toppers. Um, they're located at 4040-4040 Preston Highway, just north of the Waterson Expressway in Louisville. Um, over the years, they've done so much quality work for me on so many trucks, it's hard for me to even explain Um I'd probably need an entire other podcast to talk about how they've helped me trick my trucks out to go hunting for weeks at a time out west. Um, but if you need quality upfitting components, especially if you need a, uh, a bed capper or a tonneau cover, um, Nerf bars, you name it, um, go see the the fellows over at Louisville Toppers. Again, 4040 Preston Highway or just Google Louisville Toppers. I can't say enough about those guys. Um if you go over there and you want some work done, make sure you tell them Colonel Mike sent you or tell them that this that you heard about this on the Slow Hunt podcast. Um, got anything else, brother, before we wrap it up? Uh, I don't think so, other than I might have to go see Walter. Yeah. Give me a, give me a truck cab. I've been looking at him. <laughs> I, I think I did my first vehicle with Walter in 2007, and uh, he just put um, – a charging system to a deep cycle battery bank with an inverter in the back of my F-250, nice. which, of course, I have a capper over, and it runs a deep uh, deep freeze I was telling you about yeah. earlier. So, yeah, when I'm out there hunting, if, I, you know, if I'm hunting elk but I also have a, a black bear tag in my pocket and I harvest one or the other first, 
bone it out, throw it in the freezer, plug it into the, plug the freezer into the truck, and just keep hunting, man. Yep. And that's, that's awesome. That's one of that's one of <laughs> Walter's inventions over at Little Topper. So yeah, go see him. Tell him that Colonel Mike or Ben from the Slow Hunt podcast uh, sent you, and uh, you'll get a discount on anything, any business you do with him. You get a discount if you tell him we sent you. So. Uh, ben, it's been a blast. I want to remind everybody that this podcast is a production of Slow Hunt LLC and all of our media. And uh, remember, slow is smooth and smooth is fast.